Hello, everybody. It's Steph. Hope you're doing well. It's just before five. I had slithered out like an eel among the rocks just before five to miss the worst of the traffic. And was casting about on the boards today and was looking for a good topic for coming home and thought I would troll around the show topic suggestion forum area place of action. And lo, I did. And lo, there is an excellent topic, which I shall try and do some faint justice to. And that topic is when to help and when not to help. When is helping helping and when is helping helping enabling. Now, Christina told me something oh, a couple of years ago, really, about when she worked for a couple of years up in a godforsaken hellhole in northern Ontario called Owen Sound. And she was telling me that they would get people in who'd be really depressed and they'd be really... Uh, verging on catatonic and and so on, and they would want to take to bed and go to bed in the hospital and not get up and sort of curl into a ball and not want to move, not wanting to to interact, communicate, or anything like that. And I thought, you know, in my naivety, I thought, well, that seems nice. (laughs) You know, that seems like that seems right. That's that's a nice rest in a fetal position, thumb sucking your thumb and regressing. And that's a nice rest. They're obviously exhausted. They're stressed out. They're depressed. They need to chill a little. You know, they need to sort of rest and relax and so on. And so, getting into a bed and curling up in a ball seems like a very good idea. Certainly, I enjoy it when I do it. So it seems like a very good thing to do. But uh, this is not the case. This is not the case. She said that. It is catastrophic for their mental health if they end up regressing to too great a deal, a degree. So you have to kind of get them out of bed. You have to get them interacting and that it's really not good for them. And this is interesting because for me, when I'm tired, uh, gee, I'll take a nap. You know? <laughs> I'll curl up in bed. I've sometimes, you know, this is, <laughs> this is how much I like my rest. I've sometimes thought that if I could sort of painlessly break my leg <laughs> and stay in bed for like six weeks... That'd be really nice. <laughs> you know, I could get some reading done and listen to some music and watch some TV. And, oh, how lovely. You know, to be bedridden is really a wonderful thing. But I have this ridiculously robust health, so I just never get sick. And I never, the last time I guess I spent a day in bed was when I had food poisoning about four years ago or five years ago. About four years ago. And that was, uh, that was about it. Other than that, um, really, I, I had the flu shot, which gave me a healthy dose of the flu. And that sort of kept me down for a night. But that wasn't the kind of bed rest that I was looking for. So I guess this is where sort of my own desire for rest and my own desire for uh, time to just sort of sit and read and think. And that's sort of all the good stuff that is coming oh so soon, my pretties. And that that would be good for me. Like that would be nice for me. That would be a wonderful thing for me. But when you project it onto somebody else then that can be not such a good thing. So what I, would be in, what I would enjoy and what I would need, which would be to rest if I was tired, with the knowledge that my naturally sort of active, I guess I haven't really made a case for it being active, have I? But my generally active personality would get me propelled back into doing the right thing or doing something once that time was appropriate and I had, in fact, rested. But projecting that onto somebody who's sort of terminally and catastrophically, uh, catatonically depressed and saying, well, I would really like to curl up in bed for a couple of weeks and wouldn't that be good for someone else? And then they would naturally, uh, their natural energies would reassert themselves and they would sort of be back out. But that's not the case, right? So that 
semi-rambly story. <laughs> it's something like a way of saying that you don't want to mistake what is good for you or what would be something that you want with something that somebody else would want, right? So there is a debate on the boards that shows up very obliquely from time to time, which is uh, marriage and, and children, marriage and children. And those people who live and die by relationships find it shock, shocking and, and, and horrifying that there are uh, that we have some monks, right? that we have some philosophy monks, which should not be shocking. But uh, uh, there is this sort of, well, don't you want a girlfriend? <laughs> it's incomprehensible, right? And the response comes back. is like, no, thanks. Actually, I could just give my money to people I don't like uh, without having to have a girlfriend. <laughs> Maybe I could beat my head against the wall a little bit as well. And there is that, uh, that aspect. And this is very common in families, right, where there's one way of doing things, and it usually flows from the father or the mother and that's the right way of doing things, and anyone who does differently is wrong. And this sort of bigoted intolerance that occurs within families is its pretty gross, right? It's just terrible. And it is, um, uh, you know, one brother joins the army, and then, you know, serving your country is a good thing. And anyone who thinks anything differently is wrong and must be attacked and condemned. And, oh, this kind of uh, uh, rank, ideological, close-minded bigotry is uh, very common. And it comes from thinking that what you do is defined as the right thing. And I'm going to sort of talking about the negative sanctions, the sanctions that we have against certain kinds of behavior, stealing, raping, and killing. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm talking about, you know, what, you know, I like jazz. Cool people like jazz. If you like Britney Spears, you are just uh, wrong and bad and, and, you know, whatever, just, just silly stuff. I was uh, talking with uh, the woman I'm working with on this marketing stuff. I was talking with her uh, at lunch one day, and um, I can't remember what, why, why this sort of came up, but I just sort of mentioned something about that, that people really like talent, right? People love this idea of talent. How many movies have you seen? Oh, official tangent. Auga, auga. How many movies have you seen where some kid comes in to play piano or some kid goes out to play baseball and, you know, there's this... this just amazing they're just fantastic oh, they open their mouth to sing and, oh it's just glorious and so on. I try and talk about this a little bit in The God of Atheists this danger of talent and they open their mouth up or they do whatever it is and they're just oh you know the coaches all the jaws all drop and they just you know wow flock around and this is this cheap fantasy that somehow talent will make you happy that somehow having ability will make you uh, happy and because it will give you attention right it's the same being pretty being buff having a six pack stomach being Jude Law will make you happy and it's all the purest nonsense in the world but it's hard for us to let go of it and we talk, we're talking about it and I'm sort of saying like yeah you know like Britney Spears right? I mean she had the kind of success that most pop singers or most singers as a whole would envy enormously right and uh, you know she ends up having kids with this loser and shaving her head and being eaten alive spiritually by <laughs> the, the great viper Paris Hilton and and uh, she's like, yeah, what's happening with that? And then she immediately caught herself, right? Because like, you can't. She's, she's um, highly sophisticated. Her husband is a professor. And she's like, oh, I, 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 I don't follow any of that stuff at all. And then she took great pains to tell me that they don't have a television. Or if they do, they only have it for videos for the children. And they rarely watch. They're like all of this kind of stuff, right? Like, uh, you know, these people who could never be content with somebody walking in and finding them with potato chips scattered all over the place watching The View. 
you know, like that's like that's a big crime or something like that. Actually, with The View it is, but with most of the shows, not so much. And uh, this kind of thing where you have this sort of attitude, right? And you have to conform to this standard of behavior that's entirely imaginary and it's nothing really to do with virtue. Right? You can be a perfectly good person and watch two hours of television every night. Right? You can be a perfectly decent person and watch six hours of television every night if you want. But if you sort of admit to it, then it's, it's you know, it, people are just afraid of being portrayed or being viewed in a certain kind of way. And that is quite common. I remember one of Christina's cousins, this guy, uh, telling me, uh, you know, hey, you drive a Volvo, so you know what it is to make a statement. You know what it is to have an appearance, right, to be able to put forward a particular image. And that's very important in the professional world. And uh, I said, hey, look, my socks don't match. Right, because I just hate that stuff. I hate it beyond reason, really. <laughs> Almost, I just hate that kind of uh, that kind of stuff where you have to look a certain way and you have to dress a certain way, and there's all these judgments on how people look and dress and appear, and oh, it's just gross. But when it comes to helping someone, it is tangentially related. This tangent, when it comes to helping someone, you really want to make sure that you have their best interests in heart, you also have to make sure... I'm oh, sorry, that's, that's a real bromide. What a ridiculous thing to say. When you want to help someone, you see, it's really important to help them. Arr, rewind. Sorry about that. You have to make sure that you're not projecting what you want onto them. I talked about this way, way, way back at the beginning of the podcast when I was uh, talking about what the hell's wrong with being poor, right? People who are really into status, and that's like everybody on the planet, it would seem. People who are really into status, they look at somebody who's poor and they say, oh my God, that would just be the worst thing ever. Oh my God, that would just be the worst thing ever. And it's pure nonsense, right? I'm going from $160,000 a year down to some crushingly tiny percentage of that in order to start Free Domain Radio. I am voluntarily entering the realm of poverty and I couldn't be happier. There's nothing wrong with being poor except that for those who are addicted to status, they would view being poor as a hateful act of self-destruction, and they wish to not have there be poor people around so that they don't feel the pain of coming close to their own addiction to status, right? Especially if there are, you know, I don't know, happy poor people around. That's why all the media has to portray poor people as noble and miserable. I mean, that's just inevitable. Whenever you see a poor person, uh, he's always homeless, uh, sorry, the poor person, he's always noble, and he's always uh, sad and dewy-eyed and frustrated only because he's poor. So it's like the single mom, right? Like the single mom is always noble and, and caring and deep and spiritual. And, you know, <laughs> in the sixth sense, they have this woman, uh, Tony Collette plays her. And, you know, just deep and, and, and wonderful and caring and, and so on. You, like you never see a homeless guy who's homeless because he's a pedophile. Like you just would never see that. You'd never see a homeless guy who's homeless because he's just so racked with guilt about being a murderer, right? If you put someone like that in a film, you would be condemned as the most brutal and heinous human being alive. I mean, can you imagine that if you had a single mom who was single because she beat her kids and the husband couldn't, uh, couldn't handle it? I mean, as a sort of, I mean, if, the, if she's portrayed as poor, she's automatically dewy-eyed and virtuous and hard done by and and so on, right? I mean, this is the uh, uh, the kind of stuff that, that just goes on pretty continually in art. 
And it's because the kind of people who make art are very addicted to status, usually, right? I mean, they're very addicted to status. And so for them, not having status would be the worst thing in the world. It would just be agony to imagine not having, you know, the stuff that they have, not being part of that entourage world. And so politicians, as we all know, are highly into status as well. I mean, very, very high status, status-seeking individuals. They've got to be dominant to others. They've got to level others by raising themselves up and putting other people down. They're just a little bit less benevolent than the artists who do it simply through propaganda. They do it through guns plus propaganda. Not quite as nice. So when you get politicians and you get artists uh, together to create these images of the poor and so on, then you get society that is uh, prone towards helping the poor because when the people who have the money and the power project themselves into the lives of the poor, they feel a bottomless misery. A bottomless misery. And in order to manage their own feelings of misery, and that, that misery is sort of twofold, it's complicated, I'll just try and keep it brief. The misery is twofold and complicated. The first aspect of the misery is, my God, if I were in that position, I would just shoot myself. Like when we were up at the uh, Blue Mountain, uh, we were up at Collingwood, up at Blue Mountain, skiing this last weekend, Christina and I. And there were a bunch of maids, not the kind of maids that Jennifer Aniston in a costume kind of thing that you think of sometimes, but uh, it was a real biddy fest, right? Just like old ladies, rather overweight, uh, who had these maid outfits on, and they were sort of cleaning the rooms up at this ski chalet area. And I was just thinking, oh, my God, you know, if I were like a maid my whole life or a, I don't know what, what the male equivalent is, an office cleaner. And I did it for a while when I was a teenager. I cleaned some offices for a year or two uh, for money. It was one of, one of the three jobs plus school that I had to get my way through not having any parent around from sort of my early to mid-teens onwards. But if I'd stayed that way, that would have been a complete nightmare for me because, of course, I have abilities that exceed that station. So... It would be a sign of extraordinary, uh, an extraordinary poverty or paucity of ambition or confidence for me to end up doing that job for the rest of my life. So I was looking at these people, but uh, they didn't seem that unhappy, right? They were joking and chatting, and, you know, they obviously had taken different approaches and different roads and had different priorities, right? So they, they hadn't gone to school. They had had their children. They'd been grandmothers by the time they were 40 or 45, and now they were great-grandmothers, and they had these probably these big sprawling masses of hurly-burly families to, to get involved in and so on. And their job was just what they did to pay the bills, right? And work to live. Don't live to work. And they don't have to get up at, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning to get a flight to Topeka, Kansas or something that you do in the business world. But so when I project my own self into that kind of environment or that kind of life, it's a complete nightmare for me but, of course, if they were forced to be in my life, it would be a complete nightmare for them. Somebody said, go podcast and then go to work and have wrangles with executives and get into these conflicts and then go and talk to these executives at companies. I mean, they would hate it. And then go travel and then go present at a conference. I mean, it would be a nightmare for them. They would just be anxiety-ridden and depressed and feel like, like wretched. And it makes as much sense for them to save, for me to save them from their lives as it does for them to try and save me from my life. Well, it's a respect for difference, a recognition of difference. It's essential in life, I think. I mean, that's sort of my, my belief. 
So when you're helping someone, you've got to clean up your own motives. You've got to look at why it is that you're trying to help them. Are you helping them because it provokes anxiety in you to have them be the way they are? Right? Is it is it bringing a choice to the surface for you that you would just consider wrong and thus you wish to restrict your own freedom by pretending that choice is just wrong, right? So if you're a guy who likes to date and there's some guy around who isn't dating or who doesn't date, uh, do you feel like you have to save that person from not dating? Well, it would be interesting if you asked them, right? They, they may well feel that they must save you from your addiction to dating. And obviously, dating or not dating is not, uh, is not good or evil. I think love is better than no love in terms of romance, but no love is sure better than bad love, right? It's better to be hungry than get food poisoning. To uh, work a metaphor in from a little earlier in the old podcast... So, of course, the question is, saving them from what? What are you saving them from? Are you saving someone from poverty? Poverty of what kind? There's many kinds of poverty, right? There are the Klaus von Bülow's who have all the money in the world, but they cannot love and they cannot be loved. There is Marilyn Monroe. There is Britney Spears. Britney Spears is one of the poorest women on the planet. One of the most pillaged, neurotic, exploited, and exploiting, right? She had her own status, right? But uh, a true pauper. There's Mother Teresa, a pauper of a different kind. Who is in love not with the poor, but with poverty. Who says, I save each poor person because I see the face of Christ in each poor person. Well, that's not very personal, you know? And <laughs> it's a bit deranged, right? That's why she ends up a fan of Castro. Lots of different kinds of poverty. How are you going to save people from poverty? And, of course, the most obvious way that people try and save people from poverty is to give them money. Well, that just doesn't work. You cannot solve money problems by giving people money. any more than you can solve love problems by going to a prostitute. Money is an effect. It's not a cause, right? Money is an effect of decisions that people make. And giving people money that they have not earned is exactly the same as pretending to love people who are not virtuous. It might give you some very brief respite from a certain kind of uh, difficult feeling that you may have, but... It really is uh, not a just thing to do. Giving money to people who have not earned it is uh, like giving drugs to people who just want them. I mean, like the dangerous and unpleasant drugs. Or drink, drinks to an addict, right? I mean, Sobriety is not something that is achieved by not drinking. Sobriety is something that is achieved through not wanting to drink or through having things in your life that are rich enough that you do not need to drink. So years ago, I was an occasional smoker. I sort of smoke and stop, cigarette or two a day. And 
I ended up quitting, but it wasn't like I, I, I have to quit, I must, right? It's just that I sort of became happy enough and it became cold enough and I realized that it was unpleasant enough to sort of go and smoke that I just sort of stopped it. I mean, just didn't really think about it. Many years ago, I guess I sucked my thumb. Huh, here's something that I can't remember if I've mentioned this before. Here's something that's interesting. Both my brother and I, and you can see this, I think, in my teeth. I have some buck teeth. Both my brother and I, we sucked our thumbs until we were in our teenage years. I stopped sucking my thumb and never looked back, and, and it was impossible to stop before when I was 16 and went to stay with my father for a couple of months in Africa. That So, I mean, stepped off the plane, went to my father's house, stopped sucking my thumb, never wanted to do it again. Isn't that that's sort of funny, right? I mean, that's just so psychological that it's one of these things that makes you go, yeah, I guess there's something to this whole psychological stuff, right? In my father's house, I do not need to, uh, uh, do, to be an infant. So, if you want people to not be poor, then obviously there's things that you need to do, like you need to create jobs, right? I mean, this is what I'd really like. For people who are really into welfare and charity and helping people, go start a business. Go hire some people. Don't take my money at the point of a gun and hand it out in welfare. Go hire people. Go create opportunity. And, of course, there are people who can't take advantage of this opportunity for this, that, and the other. And that's fine. I mean, I'm not saying no charity, right? But charity kind of has to be earned. Anything that's given that's not earned corrodes the soul. Anything that's given that is not earned corrupts the soul. And charity uh, needs to be earned just like everything else. You just you don't earn it by begging and you don't earn it by anything else or anything like that. You earn it uh, through sort of a variety of, of mechanisms, right? So I'm a charity, right? I mean, people give to me. I don't charge for the podcast. It's just I hand them out like candy and hope that people will send me some money. So I'm a charity. I mean, I'm an officially a charity. I'm doing stuff which I think is, is worth the money. But I'm officially a charity. But... I think that I earn the charity. Right? And the way that you earn charity primarily is through virtue or through when you're a kid dependence, right? I mean, kids are huge charities, right? There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's perfectly natural. Uh, kids are huge charities, and they kind of earn it uh, through, uh, through the attachment and the bonding of the parents and so on, but you kind of hope that the kids are going to earn it through being good kids or through being taught to be good, good kids and so on. And, and if you have a mom who's 80 or whatever and she's frail and you, know, you can't work, obviously, and, and do you sort of pop over to, to take care of her? Do you give her money when she needs it? Do you set up what, a nursing home? Or do you sort of take her to the hospital? Do you do all of these things? Well, that's a kind of charity, right? It's not like your mom's paying you like some stranger to do it. But how does she earn that? Well, she earns that through a lifetime of virtue. And it's not like you owe it to her then. You can do it or you don't do it, right? But it's likely that you'll want to do it because you love her. It's likely that you'll want to do that because you love her. And the great challenge of charity kind of comes up when people are hateful or unpleasant or difficult or mean or surly or cynical or negative towards their children or whatever, right? 
There's a good scene in St. Elmo's Fire where one of them takes a job in a welfare office and this woman comes in with like eight kids or something like this. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but this is what I remember. The woman comes in with like eight kids and she's like, well, we have all these retraining programs and this and they have all... It's like, just give me the check. And that is a very difficult situation. It's a very difficult situation. There's a lot of manipulation in poverty. There's a lot of manipulation in having children out of wedlock. And it's like you're holding your children hostage. My kids have got to eat. What are you going to do? You can be as hateful as you want. People are going to feel compelled to give you money because you've got these children. That's a horrible situation. very difficult situation. I'm not going to claim to have any easy answers for that. I can tell you what is not. It's welfare. But I don't have any easy answers to that. But when people don't earn charity, what do you do? Well, if they are solo, right, just some guy, then uh, you don't owe them anything. But uh, if they've got kids or I don't know, I mean, that just gets all messy, right? I mean, I don't know what an NCAP society would do that. Uh, people would pay him good money to give up his claim on the children or something like that. I mean, there would be some way of rescuing the kids without enabling the parents. So so how do you know the difference? I mean, there's some principles that I'm putting out there, right? Like uh, charity has to be earned. Charity has to be earned. Everything has to be earned in life. Everything has to be earned. That's just reality. And if you're not earning it, you're stealing it. Either through emotional manipulation or through outright force. But everything has to be earned. And there are some principles where virtue is what earns every transfer of, of good, right? Uh, of goods and services, materials, energy, resources, uh, whatever, favors, sexual favors. That is all earned through virtue. But how do you know what's going on? Well, this is where your wonderful and magical gut comes in. Your gut will tell you. Your gut will tell you. Do you want to do it? Right? Do you want to do it? There's a kind of dizzying pull manipulation that occurs from people who want stuff that they have not earned. And I'll sort of give you an example of that, which maybe you can relate to. Years and years ago, this would be, oh gosh, nine years ago, I think. Yeah, I think it was 31 or so. My mother, uh, she's in a choir, or was in a choir. And this choir was having, it was the, the Austrian club. Uh, she's actually German, but she, she's down with the Austrians. Uh, maybe that's where I get the economics from. Oh, oh, oh dear, what a joke. I'm sure I'll forget to erase that. And she wanted me to come to a dinner dance with her, to... to accompany her, to escort her to this uh, dinner dance that was going on at the Austrian club. And I wanted to do that about as much as I wanted to get my tooth extracted, although, you know, with a bore (laughs) and with no anesthetic. It was not number one on my list. And I agreed because I thought it was the right thing to do, and you can never fight against that. It's the argument for morality, no matter what you do. And then it turned out that I had to leave very early the next morning for work. And I had a whole bunch of stuff to do at work to get ready for a presentation, some, some Wy- Gillette, Wyoming, if memory serves me right. And 
So I called my mom and I told her, I said, I'm sorry, I'm not going to be able to go with you tomorrow. I, I think it was tomorrow because I've got to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to get a flight. This thing's not going to end till midnight. I'm going to be downtown. I've got to get up. Whatever, right? I'm not going to get, like, no sleep, right? And she totally panicked. And this is something that if you've been around it with, with parents or with, with other people in your life, it really is like uh, falling down a well. It is so hard to resist. It is so hard to resist the, the disappointment. And my mom is not sophisticated enough to go like, oh, it's okay, I, I'll be fine. Uh, there is this, it feels like you're falling down a well because the other person just needs you to do something so much. Needs you to do something so much. It's, uh, uh, it's like you're standing on solid ground. It turns into quicksand, then it turns into a trapdoor, then it turns into endless falling. And, you know, I couldn't reproduce for the life of me the conversation, but the need was palpable. Like the, the phone grew hot in my hand with the need and the desperation and the desire. And, of course, it was because she wanted to show me off as her, you know, sophisticated son in a suit to all of the other people there. So I was her status symbol and she couldn't go alone. And, and uh, she didn't care one whit about me getting two hours sleep or three hours sleep and then having to go on a uh, business meeting that that wasn't important to her because what was important to her was her status and that feeling when you don't want to do something but you feel that the other person will just die if you don't do it for them or you feel that um, if, even if they're being nice oh that's okay I'll be fine like you're going to pay later you're just going to pay later uh, where there's this implicit threat of missed expectations in the in the air and where you feel like it's it's like you're it's like you're pulling your way out uh, if you've ever fallen into uh, icy water uh, it's really hard to get out cuz the the uh, the ice is uh, crumbly at the edge right so every time you try and pull yourself out you just pull more ice into the water and some sometimes you actually have to literally have to do this right just in case you're you have to sort of get your mitts down on the ground wait for them to freeze and then pull yourself out that way i mean it's just really difficult and it's that kind of feeling you're trying to sort of struggle out you're like a a, you're like a, a hobbit in a shelob's web, right? The more you struggle, the worse it gets. And that sort of feeling is when you are being asked for a charity that is not earned. You're being asked for a charity that's not earned, that's not deserved. But it's simply a need that the other person is expressing. And a lot of art is around this, too, with this portrayal of the sad, noble, poor, uh, which, uh, you know, that you just, you don't have people who end up poor because they're stupid and brutal, right? And it's not... And, and you see this in soldiers, too. We have to go into that as well. The young, noble, crack-jawed soldiers and so on. Square-jawed soldiers. Craggy-jawed? I don't know. There's crags and squares and jaws. Let's just mix it up in a bag and see what comes out. Ooh, soldier puree. So helping someone uh, is, is involuntary, and it doesn't really feel like help. It's just something that you want to do. Well, you know, Christina's been working all day. I just love to make her food. It's like I'm, she earns it. She's so generous to me and so sweet and kind. I mean, it's just it's inevitable. It's sort of pass things back and forth. This is what happens when you, when you earn stuff. So that aspect of things is, is very important. You, you really can't help people unless you're sort of with reference to reality, with reference to um, to virtues and to values. And also, they ha kind of have to be in motion already. I've sort of tried to jumpstart a number of people in my life 
and you really can't do it. But boy, do you waste a lot of time and money and energy trying to do it. And uh, that's something that I've sort of learned over the years. That because I mean, you give me, you know, half a loaf of bread, and I'll live on it for a month. Right? The the things that I can fashion out of a very little amount of encouragement and positivity is uh, clearly really quite uh, quite remarkable to me, at least. Right? What what I can survive on, uh, I'm like the uh, the mud fish that sort of sleeps in the silt for uh, uh, eight months and then emerges just peckish, right? Uh, I can live on very little in that sense. So it doesn't take a lot to sort of get me going. You know, I'm like, hey, 12 people have downloaded my podcast. I think I'll do 700. <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of that madly enthusiastic. So for when people sort of put resources in for me, I'm very sort of happy and keen and positive to do it, right? So when a publisher was interested in The God of Atheists, or at least claimed to be, and said it needs a rewrite, then I will go and uh, take... Uh, three weeks off work and I will go and, and rewrite it. And when a publisher was interested in Just Poor and said, I don't like the second half, I literally did take a month off work and I rented a cottage in England and I sat for three weeks there and I just rewrote hundreds and hundreds of pages of this book. And then I handed it back to her and she's like, oh, um, actually, it's not really a genre that we work with. But that's, <laughs> that's the way the publishing biz goes, at least for me. So... When, so it doesn't take a lot of positive feedback or energy or investment for me uh, to make things happen. But for a lot, and so what I do is I mistake other people uh, and I try and help other people. I help get them moving. I don't try and guide them and they're already in flight. Right? You can coach someone if they show up and work really hard. You can't coach someone if they don't get out of bed and come to, tr- to practice, right? But I, I try and do that. I help them out of bed and I put their shoes on and I drag them out to the... Uh, you know, the parallel bars and say, great, now let's train and, you know, I'll show them how to do it. Like, I just get over enthusiastic that way and that's sort of a problem for me. That, that's sort of I manifest and that doesn't work at all, right? So uh, this kind of stuff in terms of how to help people when enabling them is, uh, I hope this has been somewhat helpful, but uh, it really does come down to helping people achieve what they're already in progress towards or if they're not in progress towards it, what they've already earned through their virtue in their interaction with you. Uh, and handing over anything that's unearned, I think, is not a good idea. Thank you so much for listening. Hey, pretty short podcast. I'll talk to you soon.